Suppose I am in the military and a superior officer gives me an explicit command to do X and X either really is evil or at least I am absolutely convinced it is evil through my previous moral training. Now, and the typical example will be this. I'm in the military, I am only a lieutenant, and the colonel comes to me and says, Lieutenant Mara, we have 50 prisoners of war. We're moving on to the front, shoot the prisoners. Take a detail of men up and shoot the prisoners. Now, I claim it is perfectly right for me to shoot at an enemy soldier who's an aggressor. In the moment he's disarmed and he's a prisoner, for me to shoot him is murder. That's simple. Directly to take the life of someone who no longer threatens harm is murder. So I would say, I'm sorry, Colonel, I cannot do that. Now he says, Mara, I order you, I am a commanding officer, I have the authority of the state and the military, and I order you to do it. My answer can only be one thing, you, sir, order me to do it, and normally I ought to obey legitimate authority, but what you order me to do, X, killing an innocent prisoner of war, is prohibited by God. God says, thou shalt not murder. It is better to obey God than man. And this is the perfect case where conscience does win and ought to win against a command. Now this command, uh, these immoral commands are given all the time in the military. The military is one way. And whenever you're in a war, there are more assaults on conscience than I care to think of. I'm, I'm sickened when I think of how both sides order people to do things against their conscience. Very few people have enough nerve to insist on moral principle. In wars and concentration camps and, and, and uh, questioning of prisoners with torture are fertile grounds whereby commands are immoral, they assault one's conscience, but nevertheless one yields to the command because one is not a hero. And I understand that, but it's still immoral. I insist that this conflict has to be with a command that is immoral. If the command is merely unwise, St. Francis, when he was novice master to his young order of preachers, he told one of the novices who was doing the gardening, I want you to plant that plant upside down. And the novice said, but Brother Francis, you're crazy. It won't grow. Well, that, what, and St. Francis wanted to test his obedience. If this young person had been obedient, he would have put the thing in upside down. Would he have committed a sin? Well, has any, does anyone here think it's a sin to take a plant and put it upside down? It's crazy. It's kind of bad gardening. It's not a sin. So if you tell me, if you tell me that you own this house and you say, I want you to paint uh, it in a bright psychedelic color, or I think artistically, you're crazy. But I can't say, my conscience stops me from doing that. Conscience comes in when the command is sinful, or at least seems to be sinful. So much then for that. Now, there's one complication which the liberals always use. And I agree with the complication. It just makes things more complicated. This is one of the most difficult topics to talk about intelligently in one hour. And I'm going to do my best. 
The implication is this. Everyone admitted what I just now said. I've never heard anyone dispute what I just now said, that if an officer told me to do X and X is evil, sinful, I may not do X. I'm bound to disobey the officer. But sometimes the officer or some commanding authority tells me to do X, and X is innocent. X is not sinful, but I think it's sinful. In other words, I have what is called an erroneous conscience. And I'll give you a typical example of this, that we have people who, uh, some, some religious sects, who think that to give a blood transfusion is sinful. I think abortion is sinful. I know it's sinful. But if I am sick, or my children are sick, and I've been in a terrible accident and we need blood, I want a blood transfusion. Well, these poor people think that if they allow a child of theirs to get a blood transfusion, it is a sin. The way you and I would think an abortion is a sin. Well, these people then, if they are in a hospital situation and, and uh, their child is brought in and he's dying and the doctor says he needs three units of blood, and they have to say, no, I wish we could give them three units of blood, but it's a sin, you may not do it. And then if some civil authority says, oh, I order the, that child to have the blood, the parents rightly say, no, no, no. So from their point of view of conscience, if they think something is a sin, they must follow their conscience. Now that is the beginning of a Pandora's box of errors, but it's a perfectly sound principle. The principle simply is this, you may never do knowingly and willfully what is a sin or what you think to be a sin, even if it's not a sin. So if you think X is a sin and someone forces you to do X or commands you to do X, you have no alternative except to say, I may not do X. Even if you punish me, I will not, may not do X. Now, that doesn't make good and evil relative. That doesn't make conscience absolute. There's a kind of absolute here, I'll agree, but I will give enough qualifications later on. The point simply is this, St. Thomas Aquinas says this, that one is bound to obey even an erroneous conscience in this sense that if you think X to be evil, even though it happens not to be evil, it's too bad. You're, you're, you're accusing yourself or you're in danger of committing a sin even when it's not a sin, but you may never go against your conscience. And I fully agree with that and I want you to remember the example. The example is a really innocent thing is proposed to me. I think it evil. I must resist doing it because I must resist doing any evil. Let it stand at that. The... Point about conscience, though, in practical authority is quite simple. Whenever you have a command of authority which says do X, and you refuse to do X because you think X is sinful, even when you're wrong, the point to remember is this, is that any time you appeal to conscience, you are appealing to a higher moral prohibition. Never to your own whim. Never to your own arbitrariness. Your point is this. You lieutenant or you governor say, or you pope. There could be a case where the pope gives a command. Not a teacher. A command. And you say, you give me the command to do X. And I have 
I fully agree, normally speaking, one must obey legitimate authority, but it seems to me that X is a sin, or in fact I know X is a sin, and therefore I oppose you, not because I must win, it's me against you, I oppose you because of the higher law, God's law. And my conscience must appeal to the higher law binding you and me. My conscience prohibits me from yielding to a lower law when the higher law prohibits it. Please remember this when we get to contraception. There are certain people who are in the traditionalist movement and they are very strong and correct when it comes to blasphemy. But when it comes to contraception, they're not always. They suddenly discover conscience. And I insist that there's all kinds of error, not just among the traditionalists, they are in fact the least guilty, among the progressives most of all. They, they, when they resist the Pope on contraception, it's not in terms of a higher law. It's in terms of their private judgment, I don't like the command. The command ruins my style of life. I want to be free. I want this. I want that. Oh, I know we do that. But don't start ennobling your resistance with the name conscience. Then. You're entitled to use conscience as a principle of resistance to authority when the matter involves a sin. Nothing else. Not your pleasure. Not your convenience. Not a, a tragic situation. I come now to the real problem, not practical authority when someone commands me to do X, but when someone teaches that X is sinful. And there is only one authority that has teaching authority, that is the Holy Roman Catholic Church. That, uh, this is one of the marks, by the way, by which serious people know which is the true Church of Jesus Christ. If you simply have a thing called a church, and we say, let's get together and decide what's true and what's false, and let's get together and decide what should be and what should not be, well, this is a sewing circle, or a philosophy club, or it's a university. It's not a church. It's not a church of God. If you have the church of God, it means something from on high, God authorizes you to teach in God's name. Now, dear friends, I am not mad enough to claim that. In any of my lectures, most of my lectures are strictly philosophical. I try to convince you that something is so, even as I would convince you that something is so if I were teaching mathematics or science. I don't say, thus spake the Lord, and I am his spokesman. But in the event I hold an office in the church. I belong to the teaching authority of the church. I am a bishop, or above all, the supreme pontiff. Well, then I enjoy authority from above. Jesus Christ said, who hears you, hears me. So that whenever the church exercises her magisterium, which is the Latin word for teaching authority. Magister is the word for teacher, master, schoolmaster. When the church exercises her teaching authority, she does not ask you to follow her arguments as if to say, as I would. I have no teaching authority. I am a philosopher. When Peter speaks, 
or councils of the church speak in the name of Christ and propagate themselves according to proper form, you better believe it. They're telling you that this is true and that its truth is guaranteed by the authority of their office and that this authority itself is supported by Jesus Christ himself, true God, true man, guaranteed by the Holy Spirit. Now that is an awesome claim. And there's only one institution which has ever made that claim. That's one mark. There are several institutions which make it. There's only one institution which can deserve to make the claim. As I say, if you're shopping around for a religion, well, I hope you believe religion has something to do with God. And you should walk out of any assembly or any church in which the preacher says, well, I think this is so, and the... My colleague thinks this is so, and we've got a computer now, and this, this is the way the answer comes. Well, you say, thanks, but no thanks. I wanted the truth. I want to know what God thinks is so. So teaching authority is crucial. And people in good faith do not want their will to prevail. They want truth to prevail. And when it comes to religion, there is no philosophy which is going to ascertain what is the truth. There's an authority which speaks to you of the things that appear not about God and heaven and hell and angels, and also about morality. The Bible is one of the written records of the teaching authority of the church and is understood perfectly only by the church. The church is the only one fit because the church is the only one having authority to interpret the Bible. And the proof that this is a wise as well as a true statement is In the moment we have private interpretation, we have 500 different messages from God, all of them conflicting with each other, all of them allegedly coming from God. I wish God would get his act together. I mean, this is a mockery to say that contradictions are all from God. Before, so so here's the issue now, and I'm going to be very plain about it. I'm not talking of those cases when the Pope commands what I think is a sin, in that case I resist it. I don't know much church history. My colleague Dr. Rayo, is my, he's got his doctorate from Oxford in church history, and he has all kinds of horror stories about the past, and but Hildebrand used to tell me a few things too. There have been popes which have issued outrageous sinful commands. I'm not talking about when... I mean, they've also issued unwise commands. They're not necessarily sinful. But there was one pope, and I don't have the details right, but the sense was this. Let's say he came from Florence, and he had a grudge against the people in Venice. Well, he tried to command the Florentine people to murder the Venetians. I want you to go out there and, and stab them. Well, you have to say, Holy Father, I know you have the supreme authority in the church, but God prohibits me from murdering, so I must obey God rather than man. And sometimes a pope, may it may happen, I don't know if it ever happened, a pope might say that when you go there, you must lie. Don't tell them you're Catholic, don't tell them this, just tell them you're Muslim. Lie, 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 but get into the organization. Well, I'm sorry. I may not lie. So when the Pope issues a command, the Pope, certainly certain commands are no doubt within his competence. Others are clearly immoral. And if they're clearly immoral, you may not obey it. No one has a problem with that. 
But I'm talking about the teaching authority of the church as exercised by the Pope. In other words, the Pope writes a formal document or promulgates a formal document saying X is a sin. That's what it's all about. And I want to know, and I don't like that document. I want to know, does my conscience have any claim against that document? That is the issue which we've got to solve within the remaining part of this talk. Before I try to answer that issue, I want to spend five minutes and meditate on the gift of the church. And we ought to do this. It's too easy to be bitter with individuals in the church. It's too easy to allow an experience or, or several unfortunate experiences to make us so embittered with the church that we're going to go it alone. And we have this kind of self-righteous sensitivity about it. But this, first of all, is quite dangerous to our salvation. Secondly, it's nonsense. And I want to meditate, therefore, on the gift of the church. And I mean the Roman Catholic Church. The first thing is to say, we believe God exists. If there is no God, as certain theologians assure us, including an Anglican bishop who I hear just died, John Robinson, he wrote a book, Honest to God, in which he honestly tells his flock he doesn't think God exists. He's some bishop. But at least he's honest about it. He happened to be a pretty good biblical scholar. And one of his last books was a kind of uh, serious work justifying the authenticity of the scriptures. So it's all right. But religion is a mockery unless God exists. You, you have some people who think religion is a fairy tale, but we need it so that we don't have nightmares. Friends, we want the truth. So let's say... We all hope God exists. And by God, I don't mean the cosmic force. I mean a personal, eternal, infinitely good, infinitely holy, infinitely powerful consciousness. And we Catholics believe three points of consciousness, three persons in that one divinity. When God institutes a community... This is one of the greatest acts of mercy. God exists, the human race exists. It would have been possible, it's at least possible to think of this, that we should not know of God. We walk in the valley of death. We walk in the shadows of darkness. We have all of this cacophony. We have all of this personal opinion. We don't know what is true, what is false. We don't know where we're going. We don't know why we're here. And this is the state of man without knowledge of God. And then if it should be revealed to us that God exists, if God should then establish an institution with visible members, starting with St. Peter and the Apostles, many of them sinners, all of them sinners, 11 out of 12 of them cowards, one of them a traitor, only St. John was faithful to Jesus Christ. The others scooted off, Peter betrayed them, Judas betrayed them. Peter denied him, Judas betrayed him. It's a pretty shabby organization. But that's what God, through his son Jesus Christ, instituted. And it's visible. That's the thing. It's very easy for you to have links to the spirit. 
We have millions of people who know what God says because the Spirit is. And the Spirit is as crazy now as the, as the interpretation of the Bible when you have 500 versions of the Bible. So everybody knows what's so because the Spirit has immediately talked to them. But this Spirit is invisible. Whereas when you have a real fisherman, Peter, a real disciple, John, who speaks your language, who has authority from above, you don't have this private communication with the Spirit. You have this public teaching by a visible teacher. And what a gift that is. Instead of these illusions, instead of these dreams of the Spiritists, you have a living teacher, flesh and blood, visible on this earth. That's what we mean when we say under one visible head, the old definition of the church, which has served us so well. This church brings us the saving truths of our redemption. It brings us the message of Christ. It allows us to enter into divine life. Without a church, there are no sacraments. Without sacraments, we do not eat the flesh of the Son of God or drink His blood. We are not, we are not absolved from our sins normally. It is theoretically possible we could be absolved through perfect contrition, but that's quite rare. The church admonishes us against sin, confirms us in what is good. Now, I have seen the church when there was order in the church. And I bless all those teachers and preachers and writers of pamphlets who, even when my sinful nature wanted to do these exes, which seemed so delicious, the church, in season and out of season, said, it's a sin. This is not conscience now. This is my teacher. I bless the church for having done that. And even now when there's disorder, when most of the preachers and writers preach confusion, the official church teaches no error. The official church still promulgates truth in faith and morals. And it's a great blessing that she exhorts me. I, I happen to read the breviary of the new missal. The, the new liturgy, the, the new office. I just read the office of readings. And I hope you forgive me, I think they're marvelous. The office of readings, I'm not quite happy with the translations, but there are hundreds of essays by doctors and saints of the church, which I knew had existed, but they exist in Latin and Greek, and I read neither language. And I know once in a while translations exist, but it's hard for me to get them. And here, every day I read about two pages from a father or doctor of the church, and they are marvelous exhortations trying to confirm me to do good and to resist evil, to admonish me, to make me more careful in my examination of conscience. The church, therefore, saves me from confusion, to say the least. There is no reason for people, even now, to be confused on what is good and what is evil. You, be, you can be confused on what that man is thinking when he says Mass. I perfectly understand that. But don't tell me, well, I don't know if sleeping with my boyfriend is good or evil because, uh, I don't know, Father X says this and Father Y says this and my, my palm reader says that. Or, or, or the, the lovelorn columnist says that. Well, you're just kidding yourself, friend. The, the church is not in doubt. 
And there's no literature of the official church, which is in doubt about what is good and what is evil. Therefore, the church saves us from confusion. What a blessing. The church saves us from self-deception. Every one of us has something to worry about. And sometimes we drink too much. Sometimes we're attracted too much to, to impurity. Sometimes we're too greedy. But even if we escape every one of those things, every one of us is liable to self-deception. Especially when we get on this self-righteousness trip. Everybody's wrong. We alone are right. But you know, the psalmist says, every man is a liar. The psalmist used to pray, save me from my secret sin. And it's, the, it's one of the most mandatory things in our religious life that when we are about to deceive ourselves, which is so easy, we know people all the time, they, they strut about parading their, their virtue, and we see clear as anything how they're deceiving themselves. Whether it's a matter of sex, or bad marriage, or lying, or whatever, and what makes us think we're immune from self-deception. And therefore, what a blessing that a teaching authority in season and out of season through her saints and teachers and writers and, and, and her scriptures and her def definition that this church teaches me the truth. And if I adhere to this church, I will not be deceived. Oh, my style of life will be curtailed. I wouldn't mind a second or a third wife or mistress. I'd like to have ill-gotten goods. I'd like to be cruel. And so on. But the church will not allow me, if I am, if I am docile, to be deceived. The church, as Van Hildebrand used to say, the church is the mother of men. That is not his word, but his word is this. The church cares more about our salvation than we do. Most of us are so darn careless. We flirt with sin all the time, not just sexual sin, any kind of sin. We're walking a narrow path, and on either side is the abyss of damnation, and we're careless, and we trip, and we're half drunk. And the church erects barriers for us because she wants our salvation more than we do. She wants God's glory more than we want God's glory. She is the bride who cares about the honor of her spouse. Therefore, to sum this point up on the gift of the church, that in season and out of season, she witnesses to the fact of sin, the reality of divine judgment, to heaven and to hell can never change. So much now for the background. Now comes the last part, which is where the confusion may come in. Possible conflicts between church teaching and my conscience and between church teaching and my private judgment. Two different things. Let's start with the easiest one, at least to clear the air. Suppose there is an infallible pronouncement of the teaching authority of the church which goes against my own judgment. And this is the way it would work. The church solemnly proclaims that X is evil. And I don't care what X is. 
I, in my own private life, never thought of it that way. I've been whistling around and I've been doing X all my life. And, and uh, let's say I think that X is sometimes allowed. Sometimes it's quite interesting. And let's say X is fornication. Now, I, have, I am not now saying that the church has formally, in an infallible, explicit way, said that, contrac- that fornication is evil. Fornication, not contraception. All I say is, dear friends, you, if you start reading the Bible, if you start reading anyone who has ever written and been recognized as a serious author by the church, you better believe that having sexual relations with someone not your spouse is a sin, and it will get you to hell as quick as anything else. Our Lady of Fatima says that most of the hell is being filled up faster with sins of the flesh than anything else. What are sins of the flesh? Fornication, contraception, adultery, uh, homosexuality, and so on. So it, I don't say it's the worst sin, but the devil doesn't care how he gets to, so long as he fills his rooms. He wants no vacancies. So why not? That's one way. That's as good as another. So let's say now that there was a formal, infallible pronouncement by a council of the church or the Holy Father acting alone in which he, he explicitly says... Fornication is evil. 